You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, Jordan. Good morning, Annie. How are you doing? I'm good. I've just been uh, spending uh, a whole day yesterday at the Marxist conference. It's uh, now being held at the Meat Market, which is a fabulous and interesting uh, location in Mm. North Melbourne. And how's it been going? What's your impression of it so far? Oh, really uh, interesting. Uh, lots of different... Uh, uh, I'm just absolutely gobsmacked at the uh, range of speakers mm-hmm. and different sessions. But also this year, um, they've uh, been able to link uh, sessions that are going on in Sydney and Brisbane at the same time uh, and in Perth so that you have people who are going to, who talk from uh, the audience and do give responses to the speakers, um, you know, right across the country. A, a technical feat. Mm. Oh, yeah. that's very interesting. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That's really, um, it's it's certainly blended it and stratified it. And um, it's good that we can actually bring the community together, you know, from from interstate like that. I think oh, that's yeah, really yeah. good. Yeah. It, it is fantastic. And also the speakers mm. of the range, you know, people from... Uh, uh, the, the USA without leaving the USA. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, you know, people from Argentina. Mm-hmm. There was uh, a speaker yesterday about the uh, abortion victory, mm-hmm. which is a qualified victory, in fact, but uh, so the complexities of that particular issue. Um, and that was an interesting one, particularly because uh, the person was speaking in Spanish, there was a translator. Uh, and it all worked really well. Very oh, impressed. Okay. Very impressed with yeah. the uh, the actual uh, formatting as well as the technical skill mm. that's being shown. Um, anyway, uh, lots and lots and lots of stuff. I've got a couple of clips from small clips from there that uh, feed into some of our stories this week. Oh, uh, lovely. Yes. Yeah, which is very nice. Good. And, of course, there's still many days to go. Mm. Like there's today, Sunday and Monday. Uh, so it would be great if you wanted to buy a day ticket or if you wanted to go for just uh, for, for the rest of the weekend. Lots of people there. Uh, you'll, you'll enjoy yourself. I'm enjoying yeah, myself. Yeah, absolutely. I've... Formerly, I've lived in Canberra, so I've never had the opportunity to go to Marxism. Um, but it looks like I might be heading down there on Sunday and um, picking up a recording or two. So I'm actually really excited to to go along because I've seen footage of it from you know two, three, four years ago, and um, always wanted to go. So I'm personally really excited. Um, yeah, this week, rather than heading along to Marxism, I, I got pretty busy trying to head out to the McCormick strike. Um, unfortunately, I had some technical issues, so I, I couldn't bring back audio oh, you, from you, that. that you'll was... just have to tell us what happened. Oh, so I tested my gear in 
in you know my, no, my no, private no, space. I don't, oh. but don't tell us about your technical problems. Oh. <laughs> tell us about what's happening at McCormick's. Yeah, so I had a small chat with um, some of the workers there. Uh, look, it's... give our listeners a background just in case they don't know. So the strike is now pushing its fifth or sixth week, and um, we are well into the distribution centre. Um, running quite low on stock. Um, the problem is at the moment for um, the United Workers Union is it's kind of twofold. On the one hand, you've got some who are really feeling the pinch because there isn't much going around in terms of strike pay at the moment. Um, you've they are There's, calling for people to make donations. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so that's one issue that's kind of been in the lurch at the moment. The other issue that's going around is um, McCormick's is international as a company. It's got loads of production centers, lots of distribution centers. And, you know, although the Clayton South one is a big, big operation. Mm, um, supplying all the sources for... Uh, McDonald's and Hungry Jacks and KFC. Yeah, yeah. And even a few commercial products as well. Sorry, um, uh, supermarket products like uh, products for Audi, Aeroplane Jelly, very similar stuff. Um, the, the Unfortunately, yeah, it's been supplying distribution from interstate and from other suppliers. And this is such a common tactic that we see with really large corporations. You know, they can let one or two um, strikes go on and participate. And due to the Fair Work Act, they can actually plan for it and time it and incorporate it into a business strategy. Um, so oh, and also we're, part we're sort of still wrestling with that. For the yeah, most part. Yeah. yeah, but also the, um, the uh, fact that uh, it's become illegal to actually have people doing strikes in sympathy with, mm. uh, uh, yeah, uh, so this is what's at stake. Uh, uh, they're suppressing wages, they want to take conditions away, and they want to do this right across, not just McCormick's. This is, this is something that uh, uh, the LNP government and its uh, business cronies have been pushing. Uh, that's their reason for existing. I'd, I'd probably... I think that's a I'd very fair say. claim. Yep. No, no, I think that's a pretty apt description, yeah. But look, in any case, we'll, we'll keep reporting on this week by week, and I'll definitely have something, um, or some proper audio, I suppose, that isn't garbled to hell uh, for next week. Um, till then, I've, I've been picking up a few other little bits and pieces. Um, one thing that is coming back is uh, mutual obligations is returning to pre-COVID levels, which uh, is 15 applications a month. For Centrelink, um, this is obviously really disappointing. Um, it, it making job applications mandatory is not a solution or a fix to underemployment in any sense. Um, some jobs, like teaching, for example, of which I'm desperately trying to get into, they're highly professional. They look not just for a resume submission, but for a selection criteria submission as well. And we see this in a lot of professional fields like uh, forensics, like um, police work, you know, very, very high-end stuff. Um, Mutual obligations doesn't cater for that. It caters for firing a shotgun blast of 15 resumes off into the ether just so you can satisfy a Centrelink quota, right? It's not a proper solution. Yeah, you know, it's, but it's, it's still it's very difficult 
Yeah, for no, those it's government that... by a sledgehammer, and it's also ideologically driven in the sense that yeah. uh, they're saying that the it's the individual who has not got a job, yeah. it's their fault. Yeah, and they're making it cr- uh, crippling for that person. Yeah, and and also on the horizon is the liquid assets test as well, which if you're not familiar with it, basically when you make a job seeker claim, you declare all of your income, all of your assets. And through COVID, the test was waived. But if you're found to have assets above a certain threshold, then your payment is going to be delayed. Um, Until for... you're impoverished. Well, yes, that's that's the <laughs> gist of it, essentially. Um, but to give you an idea, for every $5,000 of assets you have above the first $5,000, um, you are delayed a week of payment. So when you actually translate that down, that looks at about $350 to $400 per week. Um, it doesn't sound like a lot, but it's particularly crippling because we've seen the amount that people saved through COVID just so they can actually have some savings for once, right? Imagine being in poverty and saving money, you know? That's that's the escape theory, having money for medical expenses, having money for um, just being able to meet loads of life commitments, if you own, and heaven help you, if you own a car, you know you're you're still going to pay rego on that or anything like that. Um, of which, you know, plenty what, of people are So you're are not living high off there. the hog, you reckon? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's spot on. But that's far into the future. The legislation's still before the Senate at the moment. Um, but if that goes ahead, it'll be reintroduced on sometime July, if I remember correctly. So. Um, yeah, as someone who has formerly been inside the Centrelink machine, um, yeah, it's it's pretty pretty gruesome to watch this all come back to life to some extent. Yeah, well, um, we've got a little piece from on, on a similar uh, vein. Um, last Sunday was uh, the um, rally put together by Rafu uh, Renters and Housing Union uh, to. Uh, mark the end of the moratorium on evictions coming out of COVID. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was on the steps of uh, Parliament and I went along and we uh, got a few sounds and voices from that particular event. From 3CR, can I ask you about um, why you're here today? Why it's important to come out for Rahu? Um, yeah, so... Renters are still being affected by the COVID crisis and outside of the COVID crisis, the rent, the way the rent is organised is definitely not in the favour of renters. Um, And so having organised renters is the most important thing. Um, We have heaps of rights as renters and we just don't know them because nobody tells them and nobody enforces them. And having people that can tell you your rights and help you enforce them is super powerful. And coming together as a community of renters is... You realise that you're not alone and, you know, if your landlord's being a dick, you can... There's people to contact and information to get. It's interesting, isn't it, because it's a political stance and it's very powerful, uh, well-organised group. Yeah, yeah. It's, um... Yeah, there's some really great just sort of community activism happening. Uh, just people who saw a problem and did something about it. Yeah, it's, um... The, the way that it's organised as a member-run union as well is really powerful and it's... It's about representing what the members want and, you know, getting together and being able to say, hey, this is, this is bad, we need to do something about it. Yeah, it's really important. Thanks for talking to me. G'day, I'm from 3CR. And, Are you? Yeah, yeah, and I was wondering about why you're here today. Tell me about it. 
So I'm a lawyer who was around when the Tenants' Union first started in Victoria, and despite the legal changes, I still think that the law is way too hard on tenants and way too easy on landlords. Yeah, yeah, it was a great um, step forward to get the Tenants' Union, but uh, this is quite slightly different, isn't it? RAFU is a very well-organised, articulate organisation. But I think there's a need for both organisations. I think we need one that does the legal work, but I also think we need an organisation that can call it like it really is. Um, you know, there are a lot of real estate agents and a lot of landlords who are never going to comply with the law, who don't respect tenants, and that needs to be called out. Now, maybe it, when you're government funded, that's hard to do. There's a need for an organisation like Rahu that, you know, can go further and say, you know, what we have, you know, is not enough. We need much, much better protections for tenants and we need to make landlords respect the law. I'm from 3CR and I just wanted to know, you're an active member of, the, of RAFU. Um, yeah. Yeah. Can you tell me about why it's so important to come out today now that the uh, uh, end of evictions has happened? Yeah, I think um, it's really important because obviously everybody's been affected by COVID and I think people deserve more time to go back to work and so that they uh, are able to get affordable housing and they can, um, you know, they not be evicted. And, and I think um, it's really important that they, um, that they also deserve like other rights as well. Um, like, um, you know, um, yeah, everybody deserves safe housing and I think that's why I'm here to support that, yeah. Thanks very much. Can you tell me about this uh, gathering? Sure. Uh, so Renters and Housing Union Rahu are putting on a demonstration against the end of the eviction moratorium. We've been demanding for further extensions of protections to renters for the last 12 months and uh, this is the, the a year ago today uh, where they started an eviction moratorium and we're seeing it come to an end now. So we're rallying to call for debt to be cancelled due to COVID. We're rallying for an extension of rental protections and we're rallying to make sure that we can put an end to evictions. There's some pretty upsetting um, statistics around people who are in uh, community housing that have been given eviction notices. Yeah, that's a real concern for us. Many of our members who are in community housing tenancies have been hit with rent increases, hit with evictions throughout the pandemic and under a moratorium um, that constitutes a breach of, of, of that moratorium. So many of our members, um, Marie for example who will be speaking today has stories about just how um, exploitative and unregulated the system of community housing is um, and we're working very hard to make sure we can put a submission through in April when they discuss uh, the regulations um, for community housing providers because as we've seen in the last few months alone, um, there's some incredibly worrying practices occurring at the moment and many women over the age of 50 are the first affected by that, um, as well as First Nations people. Um, so we don't want to see a transfer or a further transfer of public housing stock into private hands and we are demanding and have been for the last 12 months 
for the Victorian government to commit to improving and expanding public housing explicitly. Yeah, it really underlines the uh, difference. Absolutely. I think it's really interesting that there's no explicit commitment about big housing build that commits to public housing specifically. Um, and we're, we're onto that. And I think many people are realising that just saying social housing really blurs the lines there purposefully uh, about that problem. Thank you. Thanks everybody for coming down today. It's awesome to see us all here. I'd also like to pay my respects to Wurundjeri people and people of, of First Nations across this continent. So the land we're on today is stolen and it's always been Aboriginal land. This building here was built by that stolen wealth, by workers, and we have been told by these people in this house here who have more than two homes themselves, what, that, what, what they can decide about our own houses and the right to have even one. At the foundation of the housing crisis, it stems from this stolen wealth. It's stolen by those who continue to make profit of the lives and land of this country and the basic right to human shelter. This has been done all in the name of the colonial project of Australia and its capital. At the break of COVID in this country, the first thing that hit us was the incredible job losses that we all experienced and that incredible rise of unemployment across the world. And the first thing that we thought of was how are we gonna make rent? When even before, and even before this pandemic, so many of us were barely scraping by. Which is why a year ago today, over 17,000 people in Australia committed to strike on rent and mortgage payments. This forced the state and federal governments to urgently introduce eviction moratoriums. And we fought really hard to make sure that they were extended, not once, but twice through this pandemic. Governmental measures, though, only went so far. When governments told us to negotiate in good faith with landlords, we were stonewalled with refusals. We were harassed with notices to vacate. We were sent hourly emails notifying us that we were late on rent. And we were coerced by agents and landlords who were, you know, we were shit out of luck and we were coerced into deferring ourselves into debt. Yes. Yes. All for the roof over our heads. We've been living with the consequences of this government's false narrative of negotiating in good faith. It's like telling us to sit at the table with circling vultures. We've needed rental protections that keep landlords and their agents in check about doing the bare minimum when it comes to the difference between having a roof over our head or being out on the street. Now, as of today, and even before today, landlords are expecting for that debt to be due. And they're gonna turf people out on the street if they don't get it. A million people are at risk of eviction in this country, and the money isn't there. This is a national crisis. State and federal governments 
need to start treating it like one. And they need to cancel debt, both at a state and federal level. And the common response that I'm sure we've all heard is what about landlords? What about landlords and their mortgages? What about the mum and dads? The fact that this is the prevailing narrative speaks volumes to the problem. In Australia, one in three people rent. And we fork out $43 million a year of our wages to the 1.3 million landlords in this country. Those landlords who are lucky enough to not just own one home, but invest in a second one, and growingly a fourth or fifth. Investment carries risk, but the risks look different. Landlords are having to face defaulting on a second investment, and we are having to face homelessness, along with over 100,000 people in Victoria alone already sleeping rough. Landlords have chosen to buy investment properties that are negatively geared and watch the money roll in from our labour. When they and the market decides it's now $250 more a month from tomorrow, they'll evict renters like so many of our members have faced. And we'll hear from many of our members today about that problem that they've already faced before the eviction moratorium ended. Eviction is not an outcome of a bad investment. It is a large-scale healthcare problem. It's the government's responsibility to fix, and every year they make a choice to ignore it. That's why we are here today to demand an end to evictions, because we literally can't afford to wait. We're going to continue to fight for people to stay in their homes and defend each other from eviction, whether or not the government actions their responsibility. A housing system that depends on landlords to be the catchment for unaffordable housing is a broken system. The housing and homeless crisis, crisis is a choice made by the government and in Victoria, we have the lowest investment into public housing in this country and one of the lowest in the world. Absolute shame. Our public funds need to be spent on the public good. Yet we're seeing the transfer of public housing stock into private community housing hands. We are demanding, and we have for the last 12 months, for the government to improve and expand explicitly public housing. So before I wrap up, I wanted to make sure that we all remembered that over a century, almost a century ago, there was another global pandemic, followed by a global depression, followed by mass evictions in Victoria, in Sydney, in every developed city in this country. And unemployed workers and residents took mass scale eviction defence, tying up sheriffs and demanding what would happen to a couple landlord for trying to evict them. They demonstrated that defence. Through that fight, they eventually won welfare. The Social Security Act that protects that right to welfare. And the last known national housing policy in 1945. I'm angry about that because that's the last time this country had a national housing policy. Absolute shame. But there is some good news to 
exist. As renters, we make up 32% of the population. We outnumber landlords five to one. And the housing crisis is literally at our doorstep. Rahu unionised during a global pandemic in our homes and we have been working ever since to build our collective voice as renters and take organised action that truly leaves no one behind. And what it takes is for us to talk to our housemates, to talk to our neighbours, to realise that there are more of us than there are of them. And really win the fight for renters' rights now and after this pandemic. Thanks everybody very much. Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Jordan. What was that, Jordan? Well, you've got to turn my mic on and then we'll go from there. Oh, <laughs> sorry. I'm That's a bit, okay. I'm yeah. a bit sleepy. Yeah, nice little track from Tim Pike there. Um, Lax, just been kind of delving through my indie catalogues a little bit. Yeah. Um, we're going to move on to a piece that I've been sitting on my hands for a while now about. Um, it's a very fascinating little trio of interviews with some really early drivers for Uber. I think any any person who deeply cares about trade unionism knows that there's some massive flaws with the gig economy. But in some cases, this has only been revealed once we've actually, you know, had these um, app-based companies uh, actually really come to the forefront. And nowadays, we see so many problems with wages and conditions in the industry that it's a nice little piece to go back and look at in retrospect for uh, what was some of the very early days of Uber. And it starts with Yassine Aslam, who was one, one of the very first Uber drivers in the United Kingdom. So I was the ex-Uber driver. So I actually came into this industry in 2006 when I uh, was made a redundant in my IT job. 
So I started working part-time as a local minicab driver. So here they call it minicabs. So uh, yeah, it's just a part-time job for me while I was looking for uh, my IT job again. It was good because I was working, I, you had to work hard because I didn't drink. So if you're happy to sacrifice your Friday and Saturday night, because that's where, where all the work was, the pub work. So if you work a Friday night and a Saturday, you put in long hours. So let's say you come in at, let's say, two o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday and you go back home at six o'clock in the morning on Saturday morning. Then you wake up again on Saturday, let's say, at uh, two o'clock and you get back into work. And you finish at like six, seven, eight o'clock in the morning. You can make five hundred pounds, and this is going back like in two thousand six. So that was a good income for me. I was uh, I just had my first child. I wanted to spend time with my wife, my family. Um, so it gave me that flexibility where I was working two days a week, and I was earning enough money to get by without any financial. And I was also living with my parents at the time. So in two thousand and twelve, Uber come into London. And I had a mate that was, and when they first come, they only went for the niche market, which was the executive cars, so the high end. And those drivers got paid fifty pounds an hour. So after any fares they done, if they made less than fifty pound, Uber would top them up. So if you worked ten hours, they made five hundred pounds. That was so stupid money, like it's crazy. But anyway, they launched. It was in two thousand thirteen. They launched the Uber X. And my mate told me about it, and I had already registered with Uber. They didn't have any drivers, just a handful of drivers. So, I was one of the early drivers to join Uber, and I was one of the first drivers to work with them on their launch day. Yeah, how this is gonna work? Like, how could a phone or an app give me jobs? It's not gonna work and stuff like that. But either way, it's a promotional offer for me, where Uber said they're gonna give me ten pounds for every jobs I do. And they also had some kind of like, if you work the first week, we're going to give you a hundred pounds. And at the same time, I could also work with my local, like the guys I was working with. So it was just like sitting. And and at the same time, they also had this uh, referral bonus where I got paid five hundred pounds to refer a driver. So within that week, I referred three other drivers. So I already made fifteen hundred pounds. You know. But. The first day was good because Uber done a massive launch. They gave everyone fifty pound vouchers, and if they referred someone else, they got fifty pounds. And everyone, you were getting jobs, and the jobs were well priced. And then, and for me, when I come from home, I wasn't pricing it as like what I'm doing in terms of the jobs. I was pricing look ten pounds the bonus, so I'm getting ten pounds. So I, my target was to make ten, do ten jobs and go home. So I'm doing quick ten jobs, hundred pound. Forget about the fares. And come back home. So within a week, I started telling all the guys I knew, like all the look, I just made a thousand pounds, like in three, four days, man. You got to be coming over here. Yasin's story has a lot of parallels with Tess Munchik, who was from Johannesburg in South Africa. Uber reached the South African market in 2013. So I caught an Uber one day, and it was a woman driver, and I was kind of quite surprised, and I kind of started chatting to her, and you know, do you enjoy it, and do you feel safe, and what kind of money do you make? Um, and then I just thought, well, it seems perfect. Uh, I love driving. I love people. The money sounded really good, and you know, you speak to drivers, and most drivers. Like bandy about these figures, it makes it sound like it's really going to be profitable. So、um, I had some divorce money, 
and I very stupidly invested in some cars for Uber. Um, Uber arrived in 2013, and then I think it was 2014 that they brought in UberX, because initially they launched with Uber Black, um, which in itself was a big problem, because a lot of guys had bought Uber Black, so luxury German vehicles generally, and then when they introduced UberX, the rates were much lower and people started using UberX um, rather than Uber Black. So a lot of guys lost a lot of money when, when UberX was introduced. In 2015, they'd introduced Uber Van, um, which is a nine-seater vehicle. So I bought a nine-seater vehicle, which um, a Hyundai H1 is very common there. They don't uh, have the model in, in America that I know of. So I bought, um, <laughs> I bought a Hyundai H1, and then I had my personal car that I thought I would use. And then later on, I bought a Uber Black, so I bought a Audi A4. We now know that a lot of Uber's referral tactics acted as a bait-and-switch method for workers. The ease of signing onto the platform, the excitement of a new business opportunity, but also the company started with a better payout for its workers and then progressively stripped their wages and conditions back. What started as a lucrative offer to the point where it was worth buying a new car slowly deteriorated. Lauren Casey, based in Oakland of California, an advocate in the workers' group Gig Workers Rising, agrees with this assessment. You speak to the folks, you know, who years ago started, um, and they started um, using the platform because they had a really long commute, right? And they realized, oh, I can pick someone up on my really long commute and make you know, use the carpool lane and make some money while I'm doing it for my really long commute, right? It was the idea of ride sharing, right? It was that if this person's going in this direction, why not pick someone up who's going in the same direction and make a few extra dollars, right? Which is not at all what it is at this point, you know, from what it was then to what it is today in order to make ends meet as a driver, you're constantly being pinged in different directions, you're chasing after bonuses, you're app is shutting off randomly, you know, all of these different things that it's nowhere close to what it once was. Um, And I think that was a real promise that was given to drivers. And, you know, when Uber first started out, they were really um, a much more, I would hate to use the the term down to earth, but, you know, they were having meetings with drivers, you know, the first 50, 100 drivers who signed up, right? With executives from Uber, right? And really, you know, saying we're building this together, right? Like you're on the, you're out there on the road, we're out, we're here doing the technology, we're building this company together. And also just thinking about how much that has diverged over the years, right? There's no contact, you know, it's impossible for a driver to speak to the company, whether it's to get help during an emergency, to fix something wrong with their payment, anything like that. And of course, the pay was so different, right? The promises that were made to drivers when they were first brought on, the pay structure, the bonuses, the, you know, this is how much you'd be able to earn if you sign up with us now. Um, and if you just look at the numbers from what was possible a few years ago to what drivers are earning today, it's, it's peanuts now. There, you know, there's a lot of data out there just in terms of what uh, driver pay once looked like and specifically what were the percentages out, or the commission, right, that the companies were taking out of um, driver's pay. And at one point when they first started, it was like 10, 20% they were taking. In these days, it's 
50, 60, 70 looking at certain rides, you know, the percentage that they're taking out. And so over time, they just, you know, every few months roll out these pay cuts and they send a really chipper email to their drivers, right? Or it's an in-app message that comes up that says, you know, we take uh, driver's feedback seriously and in order to stabilize your earnings and guarantee, you know, more predictable wages, we're changing this and this about the pay. And what they're really saying is we just cut your pay by 30%. Um, one of the most recent pay cuts that happened in the Bay Area was two weeks before the December holidays. I mean, it was just, it was awful. It was awful to see and hear from every driver you spoke to that they had to completely rearrange their plans, whether they're going to be able to see family, whether they're going to be able to buy their children gifts. Like, it's just so clear the decisions that are made at the companies and how it affects the folks on the ground and how they have no say in any of those decisions. It's been 30 years since the Royal Commission released its final report into Aboriginal deaths in custody. Things have actually got worse, and there's still no justice. Come along to the National Day of Action. Stop Aboriginal deaths in custody. Black Lives Matter, Saturday the 10th of April, 1pm, on the steps of Parliament House, Melbourne. Join us in the streets to demand justice and self-determination. See you there. We have survived the white man's way And the heart and the torment of it all We have survived the white man's way And you know you can't change yeah, the great Bart Willoughby. Um, mm. Yeah, you're <laughs> back with Annie and uh, Jordan on Solidarity Breakfast and that was a great piece of work that you just contributed, I'll have to say. Um, I think I think it's really fascinating to look back on it in hindsight in particular, now that we actually see just how... Well, just how heavily the companies have really stripped back those conditions. But you can see those early offers, it's really appealing. Like, it's such a... It's a pyramid scheme in yeah, hindsight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, know? you can see why. Yeah. Anyway, um, moving right along, uh, I've got a little uh, sequence uh, of um, pieces uh, that play into the uh, uh, issues that have been uh, going on over the last few weeks in regards to the um, aggression against women in our society. Mm. Uh, you've heard, um, I actually thought it was a joke, but apparently uh, Morrison's new publicity campaign is that we've got a, a MP for women. Yeah. Marie, uh, Marissa Payne. <laughs> yep, and a Minister for Women's Economic Security. How patronising. He's such yeah. a patronising piece of... I know, uh, right? Shit. I love that word, security. It's like we're going we're gonna to secure what income that you do have and make sure that we're not advancing your pay. It's going to be secure, you know? Yeah. Stay in the same same place. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yesterday uh, in the Inside Argentina's Abortion Rights Victory uh, session, there was a little sequence from one of the people who uh, was uh, in the uh, audience and... uh, I just had to play you this piece from this woman who uh, wanted to make it clear what she thought about women's issues and class issues. I just, where is it? 
No. Damn. That's not it. Well, you know, uh, we can always, uh, you know, make impressions if you feel up to that. <laughs> <laughs> We've never been behind the comedy standard that much. Um, but this was from Marxism, so yeah. um, which is still ongoing at the moment as it is. So um, I'm hoping to head along on Sunday at midday. Um, there's an interesting event happening for the Purple Stand, which is titled New Battlegrounds of Class Struggle. So university workers fight back. I think I'm going to go along to that one and check that out. It sounds like it's going to be particularly interesting. Um, yeah, in the meantime, uh, while Annie's sorting this out, it's worth raising just in the university oh, sector. Here it is. Oh, you've got I've you've got, got it, it sorted. All right, well let's just get straight into I it. I just then. didn't so. upload it. So this is a, the yeah. kind of the way you talked about. There are different strategies about how we fight for abortion rights and how we fight for women's rights inside of the world. And there's always that debate about mass mobilisation and is it a class issue or is it a question of a women's issue? And I think we do see that quite posed quite sharply in Australia at the minute around the question of sexual violence. At the recent March for Justice here in Sydney, the Greens MP, Jenny Leong, spoke about inviting Liberal women to take part in the campaign, that she would hold their hands and bring them into the protest movement. I think we don't want those Liberal women on the protest. And actually, they didn't come on the protest because they understand that when it comes to the question of women, there is a divide and there is a class divide and that they stand with George Pell and Christian Porter and all the bigots who want to limit women's rights, whether it's about abortion or fighting for other rights in society. They stand with the men in their class. And that's always been the case around the question of abortion. Abortion is not a woman's issue. Rich women have always been able to get abortions, whether that's Macquarie Street in Sydney, Harley Street in London, or the rich suburbs of Buenos Aires. For us, it is a class issue, and it's one that we have to win working class people to fight towards. In Britain and Australia, there's myths that it's the women's movement that brought changes for women's lives in society. It was actually the trade union movement that did that in the 60s and the 70s. In the 1980s, when I first became a socialist, there was a, 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 an attack on abortion rights in Britain from a guy called David Alton. That provokes the biggest demonstration over the question of abortion in British society, 50,000, 60,000 people on the streets. That was organised by trade unions. Young people like me involved in the socialist movement went to the manual workers of the council in Leeds. We went to the rail workers who were then overwhelmingly men and we argued that this is a class issue, This is that trade unions are not just about economics, that socialist politics is about politics as well and you need to be involved. All our coaches to demonstrations from Leeds seconds. were funded by the trade union movement, not by the equivalent of Liberal or Labour or Green female MPs. It is an abortion. Abortion is a class issue. It always has been. We need to fight for the working class to fight for that issue. See, it was worth it. it oh, was absolutely. Worth the wait. Yeah. And now the next bit that was that came up out of the wash this week was this fabulous piece that I got uh, sent by Vivian Langford, who uh, does uh, the Environment Show on Mondays at five thirty. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, a clip from uh, the uh, 
it's a it perfor- it's a performance piece and it's performed by Kam- uh, Kamala uh, Sings and uh, it's recorded by Alex Bainbridge and it's from the Greenleafs thirtieth year anniversary uh, celebrations that were being held in Brisbane. Mm. That was that happened last week. Mm-hmm. That's pretty exciting in itself. But uh, and this is there's a language warning because it's called Mad Fucking Witch. So I've given you the warning. Close your ears. Well, good day, friends and comrades. It's Kamala here. I'm speaking to you from Jagra country in the Mianjin, Brisbane area. Well, thanks very much for joining us as we've been celebrating Greenleft's 30th anniversary. Now, in these last few weeks, um, in the lead up to this anniversary, around Australia, women have been rising, protesting and getting very, very angry at uh, the situation in Parliament It's not just in parliaments, it's across the whole country. Misogyny is rampant and uh, violence against women is still still a huge issue. Uh, It's been an issue since 1788 when the colonisers first brought violence against women to this country and uh, we've still got a long, long way to go to to fix it up. I want to just finish the evening with a, a spoken word piece that I wrote Uh, in the wake of some other different allegations and and revelations that went on in Parliament a few years ago. These were led by Peter Dutton, who's now tipped to replace Christian Porter. And uh, I would have to say it's really just replacing one bad egg with another. One bad potato, perhaps. A lot of you will know this piece and um, I hope you uh, enjoy it as, as we finish up tonight. I can't beat my chest, so you'll have to beat yours. I'm a mad fucking witch and there's a minister I've hexed for his everyday misogyny, not just that one text. I'm a mad fucking witch. I'm angry to the core. As I shriek my words, I seek to settle a score. Peter Dutton, you stand accused of failing to protect the women abused on Australia's black sites for refugees on the mainland. And overseas, women like Abiyan, pregnant from rape on Nauru, you've refused her abortion. What's she going to do? She is detained. Her rapist is at large, just like you. He hasn't yet been charged. Nazanin, who became suicidal, assaulted on Nauru, you did worse than stand idle. You separated her from her family who loved her. They wanted to be near so they could support and hug her. Too many others, more than I can name, strip-searched by guards, forced to feel the shame, the leering eyes, the threatening hands, saying they were looking for contraband. Official abuse, you turn a blind eye, you cover it up. At least you'd like to try, but the truth is out. It's more than just that text. And this mad fucking witch knows what should happen next. You should get the sack and be made to stand trial for failing to prevent these deeds so vile, for failing to uphold the rights of detainees, of asylum seekers and refugees, of failing to protect those who sought our care, who came the only way they could by boat, not air. I am a mad fucking witch. I am a mad fucking witch. I am a mad fucking witch, enraged at what I see, and I will fight till all the refugees are free. Hello, I'm Duncan Graham, and this is Over the Wall. Today, we conclude our conversation with Kristen O'Connell of the Australian Unemployed Workers' Union. This week, we cover the new youth job subsidy, JobMaker, 
problems with job agencies and calls for higher job seeker benefits. When the Federal Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, announced a subsidy for new youth and young adult hires in October last year, he predicted 450,000 jobs would be supported. The new subsidy, called JobMaker, has, however, been a fizzer, of which more later. When I spoke to Kristen O'Connell of the Australian Unemployed Workers' Union recently, she began by telling me how keen the AUWU was to see figures on how the new subsidy was working. We are very keen to see that information. We put in a very detailed submission to the inquiry when the JobMaker package was being put through Parliament and we did some modelling that showed we were very concerned about what was going to happen to workers over the age of 35. There was strong incentives in there for very large employers to fracture their workforce and to undercut and undermine people who did already have stable employment to replace them with the youngest workers they could find at the lowest rates they could manage. There is nothing in there to protect workers aside from the existing protections, which is what the government claimed. If you're a full-time worker, you can't be sacked. And that's true. But we know there are lots of people working 25 hours a week on casual rates and there's nothing to protect them. So we're very keen to see those figures. We're very interested to know how much uptake there has been because one thing we do know that we also put forward in our evidence is that wage subsidies generally don't work. And Treasury itself, when asked in Senate estimates, told the Senate that they had modelled potentially 0% to 10% of the 400,000 jobs that are supposed to receive the subsidy would be new jobs, that would be jobs that were created by the subsidy. So it's an enormous waste of $4 billion when we're talking about a government that isn't even willing to spend $10 billion to keep 1.5 million people above the poverty line. The subsidy was originally promoted as creating 450,000 jobs at a cost to the government of about $10,000 per job. So far, so good. However, it was only weeks later that Treasury modelling obtained under Freedom of Information provisions showed an upper limit of just 40,000 jobs. Then, just last week, the Grattan Institute published its findings that in the first six weeks of the subsidy, only 609 people had been hired. A huge shortfall. As Kristen O'Connell points out, not only will this new subsidy not work, but even when it does, its outcomes are neither sustainable nor fair. Wage subsidy research around the world has shown that they don't work. We already have wage subsidy programs in Australia that don't work. The government absolutely knows that this program is not going to serve its purpose. What it did allow them to do is introduce a $200 a week cut to unemployed people in the very same fortnight that they were introducing a $200 subsidy to businesses to employ people. So it's very clear that this is literally just a transfer of funds from unemployed people to bosses. There is nothing in JobMaker that requires a boss to pay someone more because of that wage subsidy. So, for example, a person on the fast food award who is age 16 and working the 20 hours that are required for JobMaker would receive their pay of about $270 a week. The company would be paying them $270 and cashing in $200 from the government. So they're literally getting 20 hours of labour 
for $70 while the unemployed person also has no option to refuse that work because if you say no to a job that's offered to you, then you lose your unemployment payment. So there's all of these factors putting pressure upon people, go into workplaces that might not be suitable, to be very lowly paid, and as I said, to take hours away from older workers or even just existing workers, whether they're older or not, because those workers don't qualify for this subsidy. You know, the restart program currently is $10,000 incentive for employers to hire people over the age of, I think it's 50 or possibly 55, and no one takes it up. We just heard from a person on Tuesday evening at a community hearing that Rachel Seawitt organised because she was infuriated that unemployed people were not heard at the Senate inquiry. And this woman talked about all of her skills, of which she had many. She was in her late 50s, and at the top of her resume, she says, I am eligible for a $10,000 wage subsidy, and she gets nowhere. That is how much these programs fail. Kristen went on to point out some problems with job agencies, beginning with the agencies getting windfalls from traineeships. She also went on to outline the perverse incentive that motivates agencies to park job seekers until more lucrative profits can be made after several months. What's wonderful about this is it's very easy if you're a dodgy employer and a dodgy job agency to collude together to maximise both of your profits from the government. So yes, absolutely a job agency will get outcome payments for placing people in work and that can include training programs, for example, where we know there are some fast food operators that will take on trainees and they'll have a three-month traineeship and during that time they don't have to pay those people minimum wage. They get some money from the government, the job agency gets some money from the government and at the end of the three months, Sadly, they don't have a job for that person, but what they do have is more space for more trainees. So there's lots of companies finding different ways to profit from this, but job agencies almost always do. They get paid more over time. The longer you're unemployed, the more money they get paid, up to $11,000 if you are an older person and you've been employed longer term. So there is a real perverse incentive here for job agencies to do nothing to support people, to, you know, if they even were effective at finding people work, which they absolutely aren't, they are incentivised to delay that and to force people to live halfway below the poverty line for longer periods simply so they can maximise their profits. And we were recently contacted by a whistleblower who worked for a network that is in Victoria. I think they said they have about 14 officers and they do training with their staff to explain that if you provide any help to someone in the first 13 weeks, it's a waste of time because they won't get any money if that person finds work. So just don't worry about those people, just ignore them completely. So even if they want support, you know, just don't bother. And after that time, we'll start to make more money. So then, you know, in terms of the support, you could possibly provide some. That same person, though, said that their caseload was so large that their manager told them not to give anyone any help at any time because they couldn't help everyone and so therefore don't help anyone. And what that meant is that 200 people on that person's caseload were being forced to go into the job agency every week and sit there at a computer for an hour to fulfil the requirement of having been to an appointment. So this is the kind of stuff that's happening. It's not an outlier example, what I've just shared. This is happening all over the country, and I'm sure everyone out there who's in the system right now will find this very familiar. Some of those folks who were in it a few years ago, would this would sound similar, but actually they've been changing the rules over time and making it harder and harder to exist in this system and more and more punitive. What may not be widely known is that job agencies have also been collecting outcome payments for folks employed under JobKeeper as Kristen continued. 
This is another great opportunity for job agencies to cash in on jobs the government is already subsidising. And I will let you know another related outrageous thing is that another document we were sent last year by a whistleblower was department communication to job agencies reassuring them that if somebody was remaining employed under the JobKeeper scheme, that they would still receive all of their outcome payments. So they get outcome payments based on also how long you remain in employment. So, for example, if you started a month before the pandemic hit and then you were kept on through JobKeeper, when they hit all their milestones with you, you know, being paid, I think at that time it was $1,500 a fortnight by the government, they were also getting and cashing in on their outcome payments as well. So we did hear some cries from job agencies last year that they were going to lose money from the pandemic at a time when the number of unemployed people was more than ever before and doubled overnight. But they were not only given a half a billion dollar cash injection at the beginning of the pandemic, they were also being able to claim all these fees from work that they never did for jobs that weren't even being done. So that's how perverse the whole thing is. Finally, the poultry increase to the job seeker payment rate. Increasingly, economists have been arguing for larger increases than what was delivered. And as Kristen points out, Chris Richardson in particular found a large macroeconomic benefit had been squandered. Chris Richardson isn't the only person that we might think of as being quite conservative who's calling for a raise. Paul Zara, who's the CEO of the Australian Retailers Association, has been very consistent and more and more neoliberal economists are coming out and saying this makes no sense. These rates need to go up. I think we've got Ross Garno and Alan Kohler and the former chief economist at the ANZ Bank, all these people coming out of the woodwork saying this just makes sense. And the modelling that Chris Richardson did at Deloitte showed that the cut that came in, I think between September and December, was going to cost the economy $32 billion over two years. So it would benefit the economy at a macro level, simply by continuing to support people and allow them to leave. That's it for this week. Thanks again to Kristen O'Connell for her time and expertise. A weak solidarity bricky team listener when just as our big, big polluter AG Hell for You was doing its bit for the environment, what thanks did it get? The bloody state socialist government KOs its plans to build a big, big new polluter on Western Port Bay. And from there to link with the gas pipeline, the government decision based on an environmental effects study um, report that pouring chlorine into pristine, ecologically fragile Western Port, among similar environmental little problems, might just cause a little bit of damage. When AG Hell2's own experts told us it would have no effect at all, or as they all say, the environmental impact will be minimal a truly brilliant economic plan to import liquefied natural gas in ships, passing ships, exporting liquefied natural gas from the world's biggest exporter of LNG. Capitalism is so logical, isn't it? 
The biggest surprise, and we can be sure A.G. Hiltu would have been as surprised as anyone, that an environmental inquiry into an anti-social proposal was rejected. It's a near first, a near miracle. The small fact that there were thousands and thousands of selfish anti-progress objectors and a magnificent local campaign opposing A.G. Hill too worked for once because that, usually that counts for naught against those who believe in progress corporate style. To make matters worse, the project was rejected on the very day A.G. Hiltu announced a major new environmental initiative by mathematical environmentalism. Well, the mentalism bit, dividing one into two, one company with two sensible names. New AG Heltu, for those parts of the company in retail and working on clean energy projects, and its big, big polluting coal-fired power stations and fossils generally in another division known as Prime Co., See, very smart, Matt, for in other words, the big, big polluter doesn't even have AG Heltu in its name anymore. No one will know or, or remember. And just when it was prepared to celebrate by adding another big, big, big polluter to Prime Co., the bloody government knocks it back. One of the more interesting sidelines, seeing the proposal was in the seat of Health Minister Greg Hunt for vaccines and good luck, Greg and the state caring business class party joined the community, including the local indigenous community, in opposing the proposal. Interesting given Greg is a senior minister in a government whose energy policy is predicated on a gas-led recovery. Uh, personally, I was thinking of a Greg Hunt for recovery, Greg told us. Uh, so you don't support your government's fossil lead recovery. Don't put words in my mouth. I didn't say that. Of course I do. It's just a matter of where the fossil lead recovery occurs. Like, not in your backyard. Uh, well, not in my electorate. I was encouraged by two letters to the editor in Thursday's Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin. Not because one celebrated the AG Hell for You rejection, the other critical of private companies receiving millions in performance bonuses when the public transport system was near enough to empty during the heights of COVID. They mostly didn't have to stop. Encouraged, celebrating that they were in there at all, because it meant there are at least two whopping sin readers who don't rely solely on Lord Rupert for their version of news, or their Lord Rupert's version of what is and isn't news. Because if these two scribblers relied solely on the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, they would have had no idea of either of those items. The Wapping Sin chose to ignore them, didn't think the rejection of a proposal for more pollution by the state's giant polluter worthy of even a line. How sad in the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin that its stablemate Skyline News is setting up a Melbourne bureau in the Lord Rupert South Bank headquarters, telling us it is, quote, an investment in quality journalism which will ensure the delivery of even richer content for viewers when I reckon the only very richer will be Lord Rupert himself. And given the only presenters named are the usual Skylight suspects, Andrew Bolt through the head, Peter in Credlin Bulldust, and Ed Al, they didn't tell us who was going to present the quality journalism, which at least would be something entirely new for Skylight. Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo Anthony all being Uzi declared Trubler was his biggest foreign ownership issue was a Chinese company owning the port of Darwin.
Um, why is that, Anthony? Uh, because it puts them too close to our very, very, very close friends, the US of the UN of the US of the world's military base in the same area. The thousands of US submarines protecting True Blue Aussie uh, from the Chinese. I didn't say that. Speaking of a fossil lead recovery, Big Supremo Scuttlebin Morlashson, a.k.a. Scummo, was seen battling powerful winds and lashing rain, attempting to rearrange the deck chairs as he went on a women-led recovery while retaining Maurice Payne in there as Minister for Women, where she has been such a roaring success by doing absolutely nothing, which, given is infinitely better than Maurice doing something. Perhaps she does take the job seriously. And for his troubles, poor Scummo copped a blast from the true blue Aussie of the year, whose appointment he so lauded, but a few weeks ago, Grace Tame declared cruelly a distraction posing as a solution. Scummo said he wouldn't share those views. Betty wouldn't. And Betty wishes he hadn't shared a stage and so praised her just a few long, long weeks ago. Hope Grace doesn't think the women in Cabinet are a bunch of arch-conservative duds, because the week that was certainly wouldn't say that. Based on the experience of a couple of Scuttlebem's male colleagues, I suggest unions should fight for accused leave. Because obviously the government believes that if you're accused of, and in one case admit, sexist, possibly criminal behaviour, you have a right to paid leave from your onerous job of sitting on the plush benches. Except a worker accused of the same activity would be in the slot by now. The appointment of a woman to improve women's financial positions got off to a big start by slashing the income of single mums and unemployed women to somewhere in the nether regions of poverty. It's all downhill from here. Easter. And we mentioned last week the resurrection of our very favourite woman chosen on merit and not quota, Sophie Mora Bellicosa, as a fair work, true blue Aussie, no longer work choices, just looks like it con missioner. Thankfully for only 13 years, with Sophie getting into the Easter spirit as she presided over a case between a caring employer and an evil trade union which claimed the caring employer owed its members millions and wouldn't budge on a new enterprise agreement demanding slashing to, slashes to wages and conditions. I find the evil union guilty, Sophie declared, making the difficult Sophie's choice between the parties. Uh, but, but, the evil union but butted, uh, we haven't even presented the evidence, uh, the case hasn't started. You are an evil union, you represent lazy, avaricious workers, that is all the evidence I need, Sophie displayed her judicial wisdom. Uh, but on that logic, we, we could never win a case. Exactly. The simple solution is stop being a union and stop brainwashing workers to oppose sensible proposals by their caring employers. The solution is in your evil hands. But, but no more but-buts. Take them to the nearest hill and crucify them. Uh, but, but, but crucifixion was banned centuries ago, well, well, in most places. Rubbish! Evil unions and their brainwashed members crucify poor caring employers every day. Well, how else can we execute them? She asked the clerk. Commissioner, uh, capital punishment also ended, uh, well, a long time ago.
This is outrageous. It limits the options available to me. And capital punishment is the very basis of evil unions and their brainwashed members crucifying poor caring employers every day. They demand that they receive some of the capital that by rights should go to their caring employers and the invaluable shareholders. Evil unions robbing mums and dads investors from what is rightfully theirs. Surely being provided with work, with a life, is reward enough without wanting to steal from the caring employer, on top of which they expect costly, crippling conditions that further crucify those who provide them with work through the goodness of their hearts, who make their lives worthwhile. Sophie said she would lobby the government to reintroduce crucifixion. I can't work with one hand tied behind my back, she complained. We have for decades both hands tied behind our backs. The evil union showed their contempt of court with a pathetic retort, prompting Sophie to charge them with same and lock them up indefinitely. Imagine anyone having contempt for Sophie Morabellicosa. As they were thrown into a cell, the evil unions and lazy avaricious workers said they expected support in their case from the Socialist Party. They won't thrice deny us, they said. Finally, the Socialist Party itself was, meanwhile, holding its national conference to decide on the progressive policies it would bring to the next election to make the lives of those workers so much better. Really progressive socialist policies like... uh, like, like, uh, well, like, um, oh, look, look, we'll hold our expert opinion on that until next week or, or even the week after or, or maybe sometime. Good morning. <laughs> Thanks, Kevin. <laughs> Absolutely spot yeah. on, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're, uh, uh, you're back with uh, Annie and Jordan on uh, Solidarity Breakfast and uh, we're coming up to the end of the program, uh, but there's still to some more. sense, yeah. Yeah, there's still, still got a little more. bit to go. So you've plucked out another bit of audio air from Marxism, um, specifically exploring Myanmar. Yeah, that's right. Uh, There was a very impassioned speech. uh, And of course, I'm not going to bring you the lot, but uh, there was a session about Myanmar, Thailand and the Philippines uh, and uh, all seething with uh, unrest. Uh, and um, Myanmar, uh, this time, it, here's a little bit, or it starts off with uh, some of the chants that uh, the Myanmar people have been uh, um, raising their voices with, mm. and uh, it, it follows with a, a little bit of uh, uh, from a voice, a voice from Myanmar, one of the uh, student activists. Democracy yashi yay, do yay, do yay, 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 oh yellow pong, over me, oh yellow pong, over me, oh yellow pong, over me, oh yellow pong, over me. So I thought I'd start with those two chants, not simply just because it feels good to chant them, um, which of course it does, and that Ong told me to do it. Um, but I think they get to the heart of what is at stake in what's happening uh, in Myanmar right now. This is a revolution. 
This is our revolution and it must win because of what workers, students and the oppressed are fighting for in Myanmar right now. Democracy. This is a country that has lived under the, mili- the rule of the Myanmar's military, the Tatmadaw, for the majority of its modern history, from the early 1960s until about 10 years ago. This is a country that has had a brief, small taste of what it is like to enjoy basic civil liberties over this past decade, the right to protest, the right to strike, the right to form a trade union. But this is also a country that has seen great crimes and atrocities committed during this period of civilian rule. The genocide of the Rohingya peoples, ongoing crimes and discrimination against the country's 135 ethnic minorities, the brutal crushing of strikes and demonstrations by the police and the military. This is a country that does not want to return to the old status quo of Aung San Suu Kyi's National League for Democracy, the NLD, the ruling party during civilian rule that oversaw those crimes and atrocities in a power-sharing deal with the Tatmadaw that made concession after concession after concession to the military before the NLD were finally overthrown by the Tatmadaw in a coup on the 1st of February, installing itself as a new military junta. And so this is a country and a revolution that is now fighting back against military rule under the banner of four key demands. The overthrow of the Tatmadaw, the release of all political prisoners, equal rights for all ethnic minorities in Myanmar, including the Rohingya, the rewriting of the old 2008 constitution that gives the Tatmadaw incredible political power within the state, and the complete dismantling and destruction of the Tatmadaw as an institution. And so in other words, this is a country that is fighting to not only overthrow a dictatorship, but to completely abolish the existence of the military altogether. This is our revolution and must win because of the central role that students have played in this movement to overthrow the new military junta and the radical student movement that comrades like Aung, like Aung Kong Set, my comrade who couldn't be here tonight, built prior to the coup and which, he, which has helped resist the new military junta. And he made this recording just the other day to explain some of, some of the stuff that he's been involved in. I'm Aung Kong Set from Universities of Yangon Student Union. Our student union have been helping organize the protest since February 6. Under the previous military regime, student unions were banned and many universities were even shut down. But under civilian rule, we fell for the re-establishment of the Universities of Yangon Student Union as a political and activist body against the administration and supporters of the own regime. In 2019, UISU was re-established on this basis. Since then, we have used the resources of, of the union to fight for the rights of the minorities, including Rohingya, and against the war crimes of the Burmese fascist military and the previous NLD government. Before the revolution, we were very isolated in our support for the minorities, including Rohingya. But no matter how isolated you are, you must take a stand against injustice. The student unions are now showing solidarity with the Rohingya. We have also supported striking workers 
student unions and trade unions have a strong tradition of supporting each other. Throughout our activism, students have begun to learn the power of solidarity. But students have also learned that workers have a power that students do not have, the power to shake down the economy. That's why students have joined forces with workers to organize strikes against the new military agenda and now continue to support them in whatever way we can. We, we have learned from past generations that the working class is the key to victory against the fascist regime. Past generations have taught us never give up and never give in. We are sending a message to, few our, to our future generations that another war is possible, a new better war is possible, and students and workers are showing them how the revolution must win. And you're back on Solidarity Breakfast. My name is Jordan, and I'm here with Annie. On the phone, we've got Andy Payne, who is from the Frontline Action on Coal Group. G'day, Andy. How you doing? I'm good, thanks, Jordan. Good morning. Yeah, and good morning to you as well. Um, thanks for getting up early. I know you're an hour... Oh, God, behind no, two us? two hours. Oh, two hours behind us in Brisbane. Wow, my apologies. No. <laughs> but you're, no, you're... it's just one hour. Oh, oh okay. It's yep, just one yep. hour. No, fair okay. enough. Well, your and devotion then, is commendable and regardless. Tomorrow, yeah, after tomorrow we'll be on the same uh, time... Um, yeah, <laughs> fair enough. No, understandable. So, um, it might be a little odd for our listeners why we're having you on the air. Um, obviously, you're a um, you're, you're you're rallying against a lot of the productions of Adani. But how is um, frontline action on coal connected to um, the Myanmar military regime, or at least in its work? Yeah, that's right. We've been up here a few years now. Um, Many of your listeners would be familiar with the name Adani. They want to build a huge coal mine in central Queensland here and open up a new coal seam. And there's large concerns about the uh, climate impacts of this mine. And so we've been up here for that reason, trying to stop work, um, organising against Adani and, and taking direct action at times, you know, blockading their work and things like that. Um, so that's been our main focus, but uh, over the last month or so, as everybody has watched the military coup in Myanmar unfold and um, protesters regularly being killed and things like that, obviously that's something that any any person who cares about human rights and human freedom would uh, be concerned about. And then a report came out uh, just this week confirming what many people already knew, which is that uh, Dani is closely linked with the Myanmar military regime. Adani's main business is not coal mines around the world, it's mostly ports. And the port in Yangon, the container terminal, is owned by Adani and operated by them. Um, uh, they have paid $50 million to the Myanmar Economic Corporation, which is a military-type company. For uh, 50 million US dollars, it should be pointed out. So that this is a lot more in, in real terms, I suppose. Yeah, that's right, 50 million US dollars. Um, and so uh, this, 
this is of concern for a lot of people, I guess. Um, one of the ways these kind of economic boycotts, um, putting pressure on companies is a way that we can try to influence human rights. It's actually worked for us quite well in this campaign with Adani is pressuring third-party uh, economic financial institutions or contractors to pull out of working with Adani. And I guess that's the same thing that we can try to do with um, with the Myanmar military regime is pressure some of the, the companies are in there. There's been a call for a boycott. And so we wanted to highlight the fact that Adani's involved there and the links between what they're doing here with our climate, with the way they've related to Indigenous people here, um, which has been problematic, and then link with their involvement there um, in Myanmar and try to put some pressure on them to um, pull out there. You know, uh, Andy, it uh, inspires the... Um uh, observation that if you lie down with dogs, then you're going to get up with fleas. <laughs> yeah, um, I think there's no surprise really about the human rights concerns about Adani. Uh, anybody who has researched the history of this company, it's a pretty problematic the way it's linked with the uh, Bharati Janata Party in India, the, which is currently in government very closely linked through a pretty from some pretty dodgy episodes in their history and um, the company you know they've cleared villages in India to build their ports there here they've um, done all kinds of shonky things while being here. and so really the report didn't come as a surprise to anybody but um, again we need to highlight it we need to say look we've got to stop we can't let these companies do this in Australia we've got a possibility to say, no, we don't come here until you clean up your act. Don't build these coal mines, and so let's try to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Here, here. Um, what what I found was particularly interesting about this story. Um, Adani is obviously making um, voracious claims of um, denial of ever having dealings with the Myanmar military, as any self respecting company would do. You know, um, bury their head in the sand, that kind of thing. Um, but it's fascinating because the report has also revealed that there's video footage of chief of the chief executive Karan Adani um, meeting and exchanging gifts with um, a top general and war criminal from Myanmar. Can you talk a little bit more about this? Yeah, that's right. I mean, Adani, we've seen their public relations in action all the time here. They're very good at, um, you know, being on the offensive, trying to paint opponents as um, problematic in the media and lying constantly. They've been called up lying about the project here, um, about how many jobs it will bring. Um, all these, all these kind of things, and so a pretty normal uh, corporate spin. And in in the last month, as the military coup in Myanmar has taken place, there has been pressure on Adani, mostly in India, from uh, you know Myanmar's neighbour there, p- people saying, um, you know, Adani's involved here. You're linked with the military, and Adani had totally denied it. You know, they um, said, no, no, we've had nothing, and then. This video has emerged of, you know, it's the classic kind of corporate, like, ribbon-cutting kind of thing. Mm. And there they are, you know, the general of the Myanmar military and Karan Adani standing side by side. And um, and so, I mean, there's no, there's no way Adani can deny that. But they're just, you know, some of these companies, like, they're, they're very brazen in what they'll lie about and try to get away with. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Um, look, to close out for today, um, we've got a federal election probably on the horizon pretty soon, it'd be fair to say. Um, the last federal election, the Adani mine was a pretty big part of it um, with, I think it was something like close to a third of Australia's population saying that climate change and broad environmental theory was their number one priority. Do you suspect that the Carmichael mine is going to be a big issue on the horizon, or do you think it will move towards more of the backs of people's minds going forward? No, that was well, go the back of the mind as they move forward. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, it's early in the morning. Give me a break. <laughs> yeah, we're all moving many directions at once. Um, mm. I think, sadly, we've seen... Uh, Adani's mine, and I think climate change in general become less of a big issue. Obviously, um, COVID has taken up so much media space, and then in the last couple of months, the issue of women in Australia deservedly has become something that's a lot in the media. But um, I think there's just less and less talk about the climate. There was a report just uh, two days ago by the an Australian Science Association about you know our climate goals, and we're we're just not on track to meet them. We're just not going to do it, and the result's going to be catastrophic. And the, this kind of thing, you know, it should be, like, we should be jumping up and down. We should be out on the streets about these things, but it's just, it's so abstract, you know, the reality of climate change and until there's occasional things like the floods we've seen in the last few weeks. The rest of the time, we can't really grasp, and it seems a huge problem. And so I'm not very... The Labor Party, I think, has gotten less strong on climate since the last election, and I think they feel like they got a bit burnt up here in Queensland going hard for the climate. And so I think the election and federal politics is really not the space for climate organising right now. I think that's why it's about local groups. It's about um, taking direct action where we can, trying to organise, trying to build up um, a grassroots movement because this is incredibly important. Like, a, you know, it has so many impacts for the environment, for biodiversity, for social justice, you know, when people, place, low-lying places like Myanmar and tropical places are going to be some of the worst hit. People are already, you know, <laughs> mm. already not well off. And so Absolutely. climate's a huge issue and I think we're just not seeing the leadership we need from the big political parties, and so it's a real need for people to get together and talk about how can we organise around this, how can we force change. Yep, and just in the last 20 seconds, would you like to plug the Facebook group as well so people can make a difference and get out and um, join the cause? Yeah, so we're called Frontline Action on Coal. We're based up here in central Queensland, um, and people, lots of people have come up from Melbourne in the past travel allows at the moment you're welcome to come up and join us uh we we do lots of things but mainly we take direct action against the dani you know going out there and physically stopping their work and so check out frontline action on coal on facebook or frontlineaction.org and one final thing uh Kuri mcavoy one of the traditional owners of where the adani mine site is he's put a big call out for people next month to come up for a big bike ride to um, maybe cause a bit of trouble and disrupt a bit of what Adani's doing while seeing his country. And so that's called the Tour de Carmichael. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> well, well worth checking that out. Mm. Good on you. Thanks. Thanks so much for coming on, Andy. Thanks for having me.
<laughs> that sounds fantastic. Yeah, lovely chat with Andy this morning yeah, yeah, as well. Yeah. Um, um, all right, yeah. we're, we're off. Yeah, I guess so. So, um, yeah, we'll see you next week for more Solidarity Breakfast. Um, I'll be off to the Marxism conference pretty soon. Um, I think we might go out with um, Ben Babbitt and his version of Long Journey Home. See you next week. CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.